0: Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I'm your host, Scott Brady. My co-host, Matt Scott, is driving around the mountains of Colorado, I believe, right now. Um, So he'll be back with us in a couple weeks. But today I've got a good friend of mine, somebody that I've known for almost a decade. He is a certified safari guide, serial entrepreneur, a professional photographer, makes some of the most beautiful images that I've ever seen, extremely striking photographs, and a good friend, fellow G wagon lover, and uh, we've traded <laughs> car we we've, we've traded cars back and forth a few times. Uh, Andy Biggs, thank you, Andy, for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. absolutely. Yeah, we're, we we uh, we have spent many hours talking the widest ranges of conversations so from <laughs> philosophical to safaris in Africa. But what Andy specializes in is bespoke. African travel, and uh, that is that is where his primary focus is right now. But Andy, you also started Guragear, which is a camera bag company. You were involved with Tamrac. Um, you've been a sponsored shooter for Phase One. So we've got lots of interesting <laughs> things to talk about today. But I think it would be fun to start off with. Give us a little background on what shifted you from whatever point in your life that you were living the American dream, doing the day-to-day thing, to becoming an adventurer, to becoming
1: the traveler that you are today. What, wow. what was that shifting point for you? We're doing this without a campfire and a beer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, that's a problem. Uh, uh, for me, it actually was um, in my corporate consulting world, I used to travel. Yeah. And that gets addictive. And you get on a plane and you go somewhere and you experience, you know, new, new people, new cuisine, just new, new things. And it's very yeah. addictive. It is. And then at some point I reached the end of that kind of corporate world and I went on a six week long African safari. It was a one week Kilimanjaro trek. Then it was a safari for a few weeks. Then it was going to Zanzibar and sitting on the beaches for a week walking through the, the narrow streets of Stonetown, Zanzibar, and then going over to Kenya and then spending more time in the bush. And it, it it opened up like this huge world for me because it wasn't just an experiential world. It was one that I could also use with, with a camera. Yeah, And so I had a camera with me and that was the excuse. That's the reason to go somewhere. And then now you've got these memories on your memory card that you can take yeah. with you and then you can- sell prints and it just kind of fuels the passion and it keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. And what was
0: that transition like? So you you're a software consultant and you decide this isn't the life for me. You know, we we talked a little bit about this earlier today when we were having breakfast, but we we talked about this idea of of architecting a life, architecting yeah. a I mean lifestyle is what's commonly referred to, but Let's just call it what it is, which is really architecting a life that allows you to see the world and make a living. Uh, For those that are listening that would maybe have the same aspirations, what was what was that process like for you? What did you give up in order to make that transition? Um, What do you think were some of the
1: good decisions that you made along the way that helped facilitate that? Great questions. Um, I think I'm going to start off by saying that um, a very uniquely North American way of living is driven by income yeah, and buying things. And I, I, I do admit that I love nice things and I do love earning well, but I, I also recognize that there's a balance. And there's, it's hard to find this balance where you can provide for your family And you can save, but you can also live a life of adventure at the same time. And so how do you balance that out? And that's kind of that elusive goal, right? Mm. So, um, that's been my goal is, you know, how can I provide, how can I get that need for travel, that, that need for being outdoors? That's really what drives me. I love the African bush, but I also love the Rocky mountains and other parts of the world. Um, but I love smelling fresh air. Mm. I love being outdoors. There's something so healing about it, isn't there? Uh, it's like, um, you know, there's, you know, there's, the two biggest categories of poetry in the world is about love and nature. Mm. You know, and for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. And so in 2002, I was wrapping up my time in that kind of, what I consider to be that paycheck driven life, which is like a, every two weeks, twice a month, you get that hit. That dopamine, like, oh, my direct deposit hit my account. woo awesome. Someone values me for my work. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you're still living for the weekends, Mm. right? You're still living for the weekends. I was living out in the San Francisco Bay Area, and that, I mean, that was like the best place on earth to fuel that passion for the outdoors because within a two-hour drive— Three hour drive, you can go a lot of places. Very interesting places. You know, yeah, you can go from the Sierra Nevada range. You can go from the ocean to the Sierra Nevada range. You can go from the desert. You can go to the to the redwood forests. Mm. You know, the wine country. Yeah. Everything. Beautiful. You know. And so that taught me from a camera standpoint to be creative outdoors. Mm. And then it just kept going and it kept going, kept going. I don't so, know if I answered your question.
0: Yeah, you did. So you you were you were doing this consulting work and the software work and you started to, to shoot images on the weekends. It sounds like so. Yeah. So those that are listening that want to make this transition into photography, obviously a, a decade later, almost two decades, decades later from your example, it's a lot more difficult to be a professional photographer. It's today. really
1: difficult. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So w- at the time though, what are the takeaways that you still think are relevant to today To helping people make it, make that transition from paycheck to paycheck to being an entrepreneur, working on their own, maybe even traveling from the road. What were some of the things that you really learned as key steps that allowed you to do that?
1: You know, you're still running a business no matter what you do, even if you're just working for yourself, you are your business and you have to think about everything that you do and all the activities you engage in as being a business and you have to be professional about it. So you have to be a marketer. You have to be good at sales. Yeah, you have to do your bookkeeping, and your yeah, accounting work, sure. unfortunately. Um, and you have to be able to provide that service or product that exceeds expectations. You have to do all of these things. Well, if, if we go way back into the 90s, when I got out of school, I had an accounting degree. So I have this kind of analytical side of my brain, which helps. And, um, so everything I do in business is always driven around. Does it, does it affect the bottom line? Is that activity that I'm doing? Is it worthwhile? Should Mm. I be doing that? And, um, and at some point, you know, when you work for yourself, you never shut it off. You never shut it off. So this whole idea of balance is, Mm. is really this, this goal. You're always reaching for it. Oh, I want more time off. What do you want time off from? From your, from your job. Well, guess what? You signed up for that. Yeah. You know, I do miss having a paycheck I mean, I loved that. That was great because it was in some ways a sense of security, mm. but it's a sense of false security, especially like right now we're sitting here in August, 2020, and we're still, we're five months into a pandemic and so many people have lost their jobs. I have no bookings for the safari world right now. Um, and it just kind of exposes that we're all at risk. We're all at risk of some sort of interruption in in our, in our work lives. So who's better off? I I don't know. I really don't know. But um, my, my recommendation for people who want to work for themselves, try to have, um, like, I say I'm a photographer, but the reality is I'm more compensated for guiding safaris and setting up custom safaris for people. My photography is that entree into that world. Like, come share it with me. Let me share it with you. Um, and I'm going to share my knowledge with you that I've accumulated over 20 years in the safari world, but the photography is a really kind of a small, small component of income for me.
0: Although the, the people that I've, I've talked to that have worked with you in that regard, there was a, there's been a couple of things that they've highlighted that they see as your strengths. And one of those is that you're, you're so personable and you're so easy to spend, time within the field and that you're, you're a good teacher. So when people are, they're spending $30,000 to go on a safari and they well, just, not, they just not always that. <laughs> sometimes sure. Yeah, sure. And they've spent nearly that much on camera gear. Right. Yeah. And, and they want to capture those images in the field. I think that, you know, we talked about this earlier, but when I look at, at how you've kind of architected your life, I think you did a couple things that were, I believe important, and it reflects also what I experienced in my own transition from from professional career into my own business is You were fairly well diversified, so you had photography work that you were doing, and and you had some incredible images that were were featured throughout um, all of the Banana Republic stores. And I remember seeing them in the stores; those those images were stunning. And we'll put we'll put those in a couple examples of that in the show notes, but beautiful images. So you were drawing an income from those kinds of opportunities. That was also fueling interest in people learning photography from you, um, which was also fueling the opportunity to lead the safaris, which was also fueling the opportunity to, to design camera bags for Gura gear. And do you think that that kind of model still has merit or are things so now so vertical and specialized that that, that diversification is less possible.
1: Oh, that's a really good question. I, I would say that no matter what business you do, you have to choose. Are you, Am I going to be a specialist in something mm-hmm. and own it and get it? Uh, or am I going to, am I just going to become a generalist and be really good at a lot of different things? Well, for me, in my business, I have to have many different income streams to try to insulate myself from, you know, typical business cycles Um, finicky customers. Sure. You know, so like, let's say, so I offer some safaris on my website that are what I call open enrollment safaris here. I've put these together. Come join me. uh, We start on this day. We end on that day. And then I set up custom bespoke safaris for people. So let's say they don't want to travel in a group, small group. They want to go on their own. Um, I sell prints. I license photographs for other safari companies that are trying to market their own services. Um, banana Republic has been a customer of mine in the past. That was a really, that was a great, that was a great project we did together, but that's been 12 years. Yeah, It's been 12 years. I can't believe it. Um, so the point is that I just have to rely on a lot of different things to get me through right now. For example, travel's dead yeah. for the moment. So I'm just concentrating on building a new website and doing some fundraising events, selling my images for the benefit of some of the conservation organizations in Africa. I'm staying busy. Maybe they're not doing the best with, from an income standpoint, but it's keeping me relevant, visible.
0: Maybe recharging yourself a little bit. Yeah.
1: It's actually been nice to be home for a little while. It's very unusual for me. Normally in a given year, I'm gone on safari, 15, 18, 20, 22 weeks out of the year. That's a lot of time in an airplane, mm. a lot of jet lag. But once I get there, it's like, oh, that that, that battery levels at 100%. There's something about landing in Africa that is just so exhilarating. <laughs> oh, it's, no, the, best. it's no, the best. Yeah,
0: no question. And I, and I think I'm in the same boat too. I mean, I I have traveled less this year than in recent memory, probably over a decade. So it's definitely been, it's been very, very busy for me in other ways too. So it just feels like, uh, I was listening. Um, Ryan holiday is a really th- thoughtful author and he was talking about the pandemic and he was mentioning, is, is this going to be a live time for you or dead time? And I think a lot of people, they have decided that they're going to just plug into Netflix and kind of disconnect for a little bit. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing wrong with making that decision, but you're not building for when things start to open back up again and it, for me, it's like, for example, just being able to fully organize this shop and go through all of my gear. That's and I realize like, I've had this for 10 years or the batteries are dead in this thing. Yeah. Or, and, and <laughs> it's been, it's been very productive. Have you found that kind of, that same kind of opportunity? It's been, it's been
1: the best five months so far. Not, it's not what I would have chosen. Right. But um, every day that I wake up, I try to think of, is there something that I can learn today is there an experience that I miss or haven't done that I want to do? Um, so sometimes that's trying a new grilling or barbecue recipe mm-hmm. or new wine, or maybe it's going and going to the gun range and shooting something I haven't shot before, or just hanging out with a friend. Sure. Socially distanced, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, the point is, is that I'm now doing the things that I haven't had time to do in a while. It will, it's getting long in the tooth. Now I'm ready to, get going again. And so that's actually why I'm here in Arizona, two yeah. states away. <laughs> yeah. 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 Starting
0: to get, starting to get moving again, which <sighs> feels, which feels good. Yeah. yeah, for sure.
1: And we just, and we just finished a long three and a half week road trip overland trip all throughout Colorado, Moab, the Tetons, the Black Hills, just did a big loop. And yeah. you did that with your family. You have two kids, right? I've got two boys, 12 and 14. And we just, uh, we flew into Denver, rented a a Jeep, four-door Jeep and took off. And what, when, now that you've done that multi-week
0: trip with, you know, nearly grown kids, (laughs) um, what what were your takeaways from that? What did you learn about traveling with kids that you you think might help somebody else for the same
1: situation? Yeah, well, they're very active. So they love to wrestle in the backseat and a car that's not that large, Right. right? It's not like we rented a Suburban or something or a big Sprinter van. Right. I didn't want that. I wanted to be more nimble, be able to go wherever I wanted, however I wanted. Um, What I learned is that my kids quickly adapted to a life without electronics. Mm. And that was really nice. So did you put some boundaries in
0: place on how often they could work? play their games or just yeah. n- none at all.
1: None at all. Like you no. can't bring it. <laughs> oh,
0: that's awesome. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> now, did you do something similar? Did you kind of
1: disconnect a little bit? I did. I did during the day, but when we got back to the cabin at night, I would have to do some, yeah, get caught up on yeah. work. I yeah. mean, I'm in the, I'm in the service industry and I sure. can't go off the grid for too long.
0: Yeah, no, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah.
1: And when it comes to safaris,
0: um, those that are listening, I know in the questions that we've hold our readers and our listeners on. One of the more common places that people want to travel is Africa. And and from my perspective, there's a lot of great reasons to do that. To me, it's one of the places on the planet I feel most at home. But if someone is looking to go to Africa, not just from an overland perspective, but to actually have that full Africa experience with wildlife and nature, um, what are some advice that, what's some advice that you would give them around that? Like self drive versus,
1: versus having a guide where, what countries yeah. should they go to? Let's talk about that. Well, just like any kind of travel, you know, first understand what your needs are and your, your requirements are like, what do I want? Do I want a four seasons experience out in the bush? Do you want to be sleeping in a, in a, a dome tent that you pitched yourself? You know, what is it that you're after? What, what does that experience feel like? And I would say, use adjectives to describe to me, if I'm going to plan your safari for you, tell me using simple words. What is it? Yeah. What is it that you want? And then also you have to develop a budget. You know, what is it that you're willing to spend for it? Because, um, I'm going to warn people in advance that once you go to Africa once, it's not your last time. (laughs) It's not. So my customers tell me that once they've traveled Africa, they've already done the Western Europe and they've done Asia and they've done South America and they've done other travels. But once they get to Africa, it's in its own bucket. Yeah. There's Africa and everything else because Africa basically just opens up a new door more opportunities, you know, there are 55 countries in Africa, 55 countries. That's quite a bit. Huge continent. Yeah. Huge continent in the safari world, my world, that's only about 10 of them. Okay. And there's so much to see just in those 10 that I work in Namibia, Botswana, South Africa, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Ethiopia. There's a lot going on. Yeah. It's a lot going on. So understand what your requirements are. What do you want? Maybe maybe start accumulating photographs of camps of safari experiences because there's a big difference between every style of safari. If if you just said, "Well, here's my budget," you know, pick a number, um, it's probably gonna not deliver as much as you think it will. It's gonna cost you more. Yeah. So let's say you choose an overland safari where you do self drive and you drive into Kruger National Park and and uh, uh, South Africa, that. Experience, you're gonna to have to rent a, a capable vehicle. You're gonna be self-catering, which means you're cooking your own meals. You're gonna to have to plan for that. So that actually takes more day out of your more more days out of your time allotted. Let's say you want to go for two weeks. You need a few days just to prepare to go grocery shopping, get all ready. And that's you know, every day that you're renting a vehicle is $150 a day for a nice, nicely kitted vehicle with rooftop tent and sure. kind of stuff, you know, it starts to add up.
0: It really, it really does. And I, I remember having done both guided and self-drive safaris in Africa. One of the things with the exception of the Okavanga Delta, which is literally the garden of Eden in
1: my mind. It's, a, um, it's the connoisseur safari. Yeah, it really it, is.
0: I mean, I couldn't drive 20 feet without seeing game, but everywhere else that I've done self-drive, if you don't have either a very experienced local or a lot of luck, you don't see that much wildlife. Whereas when I've been on any kind of a, of a guided safari, I mean, everything from wild dog to lion, to I mean, just the most, the most incredible experiences because these guides, they know where the animals are. They're intimately familiar with the environment. They communicate well with the other guides in the area so that they can give each other tips on where things can be found And it's definitely been a lot more rich. And one of the things that I really liked about it was it removed that element of needing to drive and navigate and worry about the vehicle. And I could really just kind of soak up and experience that moment in nature with those incredible animals. And uh, I think that that, for myself, that was definitely a lesson that it doesn't always have to be self-drive.
1: Yeah. You know, um, as a guide, I will tell you that finding finding something worth watching or taking photographs of that's probably 10 or 20% of the work. The rest of the work is, is basically being a host for the country, for the camp, for the area. We're interpreters of nature. We explain everything and we try to do it in a way that makes sense. You can actually digest it. So we throw out these golden nuggets all day long Yeah, and it's up to you to pick them up. You know, it, it um, sometimes it just goes over people's heads. They're like, "Yeah, I'm not interested in that animal or not that you know, that little stat." But sometimes it, people just take it in like a sponge. Yeah, it's great. You know, we have to we have to entertain people through stories, through knowledge, through teaching throughout the day as we're driving around. And then when we find our subject, then we have to explain a lot about it. For example, you know, what is it? Maybe what's the scientific name? Why is that scientific name? Interesting. Why is it relevant? Like the African plains elephant is the loxodonta africana. Loxos is the word. It's a Greek word for, for um, pointed. Donta is tooth. So it's a pointed tooth. Their, their mouth mm-hmm. basically comes to a point in their mouth and, and uh, their, their teeth. And uh, then we explain what the subject is doing, why it's doing that, and then maybe how to photograph it. So we basically repeat this all throughout the day and people just pick it up. And if you're on your own game drive, you can find things, maybe not as much, but you're also missing out on all of those other factoids. Yeah, so I would say,
0: totally for, absolutely.
1: I'm going back to your original question is like, how do I advise somebody? I would say, you know, you're figuring out your budget and you're figuring out what do you want out of the experience. And if I had a, you know, X dollars to spend, I would spend it on trying to f- line up the best guide I could. It doesn't matter about like the thread count of your, your linens and your bed and all the, the other things. Those kind of, those become secondary mm. because you're always going to be well care, cared for. You can be taken care of. All your expectations are going to be exceeded. But that safari experience, you're spending so many hours in the day in a vehicle mm. or on foot or both. You want somebody interpreting that for you.
0: You know, and I've heard that too. A couple of people that I've talked to about their African safari experience, the ones that lit up the most were the ones that either did the guides, the guiding on foot or on horseback. Now yeah. paint that <laughs> paint that picture. What, what makes, I mean, to me being on foot feels like I moved down the food chain, which is probably what makes it more exciting, yeah. but talk a little bit about On foot and on horseback.
1: So on foot, you know, the the goal always as a safari guide is to keep people safe, right? And so in order to keep people safe, you have to put in certain protocols to make sure that they are safe. And therefore you walk a certain way, you have a weapon, um, you're quiet, but we're also intentionally, intentionally most of the time, not taking you on walks in areas that are heavily populated with predators, or dangerous animals, not necessarily predator. Um, So it's like a Cape Buffalo, for example, (laughs) Cape Buffalo, elephant, hippo, hippo out of the water, extremely dangerous. Um, But we, we want that experience to be interpretive, interesting, thrilling. So we're usually focusing on the smaller things, the scat on the ground, what animal eats, what, right. You know, we get into discussions around the difference between grazers and browsers you know, ones, uh, mammals that eat grass versus leaves. Right. Sure. And, and so we start, start peeling away and telling stories about like specific trees and the ecosystems around those trees. And that's usually what you don't talk about when you're driving in a vehicle because everybody's big cat focused. So sure. we try to do the other things while we're on foot.
0: Oh, uh, very cool.
1: Yeah. And then on a horseback, Ooh, boy, that, that actually is the, what I consider to be more dangerous. Because now First you're- First of all, it's a horse, which is damn- Well, you're riding, you're riding an, an animal, <laughs> yeah. right? That might respond differently than your expectations, given a situation.
0: Sure. <laughs> so, oh, I've, been, I've been bucked off plenty of horses. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's actually not my favorite style um, because a lot of people arrive with their own differing experiences with horses. Oh, sure. You know, the difference between someone who knows how to ride English and the person who knows how to ride Western well, that's, that's a pretty big gap right there.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Right. Especially if you show up and it's the wrong saddle.
1: Oh yeah. (laughs) That can happen. Yeah. 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 So I'm, I'm usually not doing that. Um, I'm not a horseman by, by practice. Yeah. So it's not my comfort zone.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's just so interesting how many different ways that you can experience Africa and then even how dramatically the conditions change. Like if you were to compare Zimbabwe with Namibia. I mean, oh. they, they, it seems like they're two different
1: planets. Yeah. It's like, you know, every country has a different th- experience range given a time of the year. For example, the farther the wave you get, f- get from the equator, your seasons are going to be more pronounced, right? So let's say you make it all the way down to Namibia or South Africa, or Botswana. Well, a July, Winter is very different than a November, uh, uh, December, summer. Yeah. Very different. Very different. The rainfall, the vegetation, migratory patterns. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, and, and and if you read books, they'll often tell you to avoid rainy seasons. Well, I think that's bad advice because maybe the rainy season actually accomplishes somebody's goal that they want. They want a lush green safari, Um, And a rainy season in Botswana, remember, it's the Kalahari Desert. Rainy season in Botswana is very different than a rainy season in Seattle, Washington, right? Sure. And so it's not that much rain. We get rain maybe four days a month during the rainy season, maybe six days. And that's usually an hour at a time. It's not that rainy.
0: And it seems like some of your most dramatic photographs come from those desert environments.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love, I'm a desert rat myself. I love the desert, but I love that when the desert comes alive during the rainy times of the year. So photographers look kind of going back into photography mode here, but photographers want drama and we get drama typically from shooting in violent weather situations, the edge of light situations like right when a storm comes through mm. or after it's come through, mm. that's what we want. It's when you get the dramatic light.
0: Yeah. The the thing I think that's, was so striking about your images is how you'd have an elephant moving through, let's call it the Kalahari. And, you know, the elephant is sharp in focus, a lot of contrast, black and white photograph. And then there, there's this technique that you've used where the the background is almost absent and the animal just stands out so starkly in the photograph um and what are you what were you typically shooting those photographs with
1: so i'll two answers um first of all, if you pay attention so photography by definition is photography writing with light, so it's light writing um photography is often like your, your, the success of your photographs are usually through your composition, not through how you process it or anything like that. It's how are you assembling the subjects and the shapes into your scene? Well, I would say that the, one of the best things to do is to separate your shapes. Like if you want that elephant to show up, make sure that its background and foreground are dissimilar to it in tone and in texture. So look for backgrounds that are really far away. So if you use any lens, it doesn't even matter what f-stop you're using. It's going to be blurry. Yeah. Right. So the closer a vegetation or a background is to your subject, the sharper it's going to be no matter what your f-stop is. So um, I would say composition is like the primary driver in all successful photographs, especially black and white ones, because you don't have that color. The color information is not there. Right now, you're relying all on shapes. Yeah,
0: and those and those images were just. I can see why Banana it's, Republic chose
1: those. You know, it's, it's it. Thank you. It's interesting. Um, when I was in their ad agency's offices in New York, and we were going through my portfolio of photographs, I noticed what they were looking at and moving towards, and they were moving towards non-aggressive photographs non-aggressive subjects. So they were not choosing big cats. Typically they were moving towards peaceful, harmonious, uplifting, hopeful, heroic looking Mm -hmm. photographs. And here I'm using some adjectives to describe them, but uh, they were moving towards zebras, giraffes, Elephants. Yeah. They were not moving towards aggressive lions that were yawning or, or yeah. you know roaring. Uh, and it was really helpful for me because it it's helped me over the last basically 18 years since I started this business. It's helped me come, arrive at a portfolio of photographs that are always consistent because I use these these adjectives. Yeah. This timeless, remote, hopeful, uplifting, heroic approach to photography. And how do I get that? Right. So often photographers are, are, are sometimes focusing on the wrong thing. Pardon the pun. They're focusing on the things like, you know, what subject am I photographing? Well, don't think about the subject. Think about the adjectives that you want the subject to be portraying. Mm. And if it doesn't exhibit that, don't take the photograph, point the lens somewhere else. You know, I'm, I'm looking for photographs and it doesn't matter if I'm in Africa, Iceland The Galapagos Islands, it just doesn't matter. I'm always looking for those same kind of curated adjectives all the time. And I wrote about this in an article a uh, a couple of years ago in the the journal. And it just, it helps, it helps me take my photographs, not process them. It helps me capture which ones that I want. And I know when I take that image, I'm like, oh, I know I'm going to pay attention to that one when I get back to get back home
0: yeah and for those that are listening, uh, Andy has contributed on several occasions to Overland Journal, and we'll put a link to some of his articles that was that were that have been featured in the magazine. Um, we've always appreciated his approach towards the telling of a story visually, and that's what Overland Journal has always attempted to do is tell that visual story as you turn the pages.
1: Yeah, I mean, photography is storytelling, right? The the challenge is that, you know, photography is a visual activity. And so if you're telling a story with photographs, you have to almost assume that there's no dialogue. There's Mm -hmm. no written dialogue. There's no spoken dialogue to describe what's going on. So everything that you are trying to say in in a photograph, you have to communicate it in that photograph. It has to be somewhat apparent. Years ago, a National Geographic photographer that I was, I did some assistant work for 20 years ago on weekends. He taught me a very, very important lesson. He said, Andy, when you go out and take photographs, you have to think in your mind, am I out to capture one photograph to tell a story or do I need multiple images to tell a story? Mm. You know, the average coffee table book contains around 130 photographs. And so somebody like Franz Lanting, who's one of my friends and heroes, he he, he uses every page to to tell a story. Hmm. He needs the entire book. And then um, the guy I used to work for, his name was Galen Rau. Um, he was after the single photograph, and we were sitting there having having lunch, barbecue in Bishop, California, and they were telling me their approach. And that was probably the best advice I've had coming my direction as a creative person, what could I use that was easy to understand? It was this idea of storytelling. Mm. Do I want the one photograph above the mantle in the living room or do I need the book? Well, I'm the one photograph guy. That's, that's what I am. No question. Yeah. And so it's, so I know that, but that's as a result of being taught that by them, that was really good advice.
0: Well, and thanks for sharing that with us today. That's awesome. And, you know, we do talk technically on this podcast too. And I know that beautiful images have been taken with iPhones and incredible images have been taken with Hasselblads and everything in between. Give some, some insights, some basic equipment advice. If someone's going to go do their African safari of a lifetime, which as you said, will end up being the first of many, (laughs) not the only first of many. But um, what are some, it doesn't have to be specific models, but what are some things that people do need to plan for around their equipment for Africa?
1: Rent or buy. That's my first kind of decision matrix right there. Because right now you've got in North America, um, you've got multiple rental outlets. You don't have to buy anything if you don't want to own it and use it after your safari. So I would say, figure out, do I want to own something after my safari? Will I use it? And if the answer is, uh, I want to own it, then start building a kit around lenses, not cameras. Mm. Lenses are going to be with you for a long time. Invest in really good lenses. Maybe not the long lens for your Safari because you might not use it. But the other things like your 24 to 70 kind of focal length, your 70 to 200s, the, the staple, the workhorse lenses. Buy good quality glass, build your camera around it, and then maybe augment that for your safari with a rented long lens. So I would and say is that,
0: that 400 millimeter F 2.8, that's the one you rent,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I always tell people, you know, for your biggest lens on safari, bring the biggest lens that you can afford, bring the biggest lens you can carry and want to carry. Yeah. You know, cause some people say, you know, give me the best. Well, you know, the best is going to weigh 15 pounds and it's going to cost 15 grand. Do you really want that? Are you really going to use it after this safari? Can you pick it up?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think every time that I photographed animals in Africa, I've always realized that I didn't have enough focal length and it wasn't fast enough. And, yeah. and, and that was, you know, the bodies are amazing and they shoot in low light better now than they ever have. But I always need, you know, if if I had a 200 millimeter, it was way too short. I really needed a 400 millimeter.
1: You know what though? Always use um, whatever lens you have, use it for its benefits, not for its weaknesses. Meaning, let's say I go on safari. My longest lens is 200 millimeter equivalent. Well, you're not going to be very successful photographing little birds. But you may be successful photographing... Herds of elephants walking across a field, where you've got your your clouds are included, your grass is included. You know, you're you're telling this story of this bigger place. You know, we all know what a giraffe looks like. It's got four legs. It's got a long neck and spots. Right? Yeah. And um, back to scientific names, it's the giraffe camelopardalis camelopardalis camelo to camel, and it's pardalis. Which is a leopard, so it's a leopard spotted camel <laughs> in Latin. So the point is is that we know what they look like. We don't need to fill the frame with them mm. because our brain fills in all of that information that we know since we were little tiny kids what these subjects are in books, right? So we I'd say the biggest the biggest um, room for improvement for somebody on their first day on Safari is to actually zoom out mm. because often people are cutting off tails. On the edge of the frame, they're cutting off the hooves, the, the bottoms of the legs. They're doing that. They're they're going in so tight where they're actually forgetting the bigger picture.
0: That's so that, great advice.
1: Yeah. So I, um, I don't own big cameras, by the way. I sold my longest lens probably five years ago. I had a Canon 200 to 400. Before that, I had a Canon 500 prime. I sold them. I don't shoot that way anymore. Um, it's not that it's bad. It's just that I kind of honed in on the, the storytelling that I wanted to tell. So I use high megapixel phase one cameras and Canon 35 millimeter gear. But my intended goal is a really, really big print on the wall, which means that my subject can be pretty small in the frame. Right. By The time I print it big, the subject is decent in size. Right. That's my way of telling a story. I I would would have a very difficult time showing my photographs in a book where they where maybe an image is three by five inches.
0: That makes sense because you're you're taking advantage of all of that data. I mean, you showed me that phase one camera that you're carrying today. <laughs> that thing is awesome. I mean, that just the, just the lens is like a work of, of mechanical art.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a road stock lens and uh, the phase one back. I mean, they're made in Denmark and made in Denmark. They're amazing.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, and the, and the images, I mean, those that are listening, many of you will know this, but buying a, a $100,000 camera doesn't give you a $100,000 image. No, 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 no. It gives you the opportunity to take a $100,000 image, but certainly the like you said the composition, the light, the subject, are you telling a story?
1: Yeah, but my requirements are very different than most people's. My, you know, remember we're, we're back to multiple income streams. So a print sale for me through an interior designer for a client that maybe let's say a law practice where they've got three conference rooms, they've got four hallways, they've got a reception area, and they need 18 to 20 photographs, and each of them are at a minimum 30 by 40 inches. And they want them all around. Well, that puts me in a different need category than someone just looking for one photograph that's 10 by 15 inches. Sure. It's it's, it's different. It's just a different set of requirements. Um, with that being said, I'm sponsored. So financially, this is not been hurtful for me.
0: Yeah, sure. (laughs) Yeah. That's amazing. Now let's get back to some overlandy stuff. So you, you did a big drive across Africa a few years ago, right? You drove all the way up to
1: Kenya, right? Yeah. We did it from uh, Johannesburg, uh, Pretoria, all the way up through. And that was, that was a lot of fun. What were you driving? We were in a Defender 110. Oh yeah, you were telling me about the yeah, it your was a, shoulder it, still hurts from that trip. Yeah. Oh god, man. <laughs> you know, it, we were talking earlier about how it's almost as if they position the seat assuming that your windows open. Yeah. Because your your shoulder is the only way it's comfortable. Your, your arm is going to be yeah. hitting against that. Um yeah, but it, it, that was a great trip.
0: That was a great trip. And and that was your first long overland journey?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's probably my first and only long one because most of mine tend to be shorter. Sure. Um, it's a multiple country approach that's, you know, heading up to Zambia, Zimbabwe, Tanzania and Kenya. That's a nice journey. It's a yeah, nice, it's amazing. It's not, for most people. I would say that's a three to four week trip for most people. Some people can do it faster. Some people do it a lot slower. Um, I would like to do one through Angola sometime. Yeah. That's my opening that's, up now. That's my goal. Especially southern Angola.
0: Well, it's, we got to plan that.
1: Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <That sounds laughs> let's well. do it. That yeah, sounds,
0: grab some decker G wagons and go do that.
1: Oh, <sighs> Entdecker time. <laughs> yeah.
0: So that that leads to our our next couple questions. So you you have had some interesting vehicles, and we've actually traded them back and forth a few <laughs> time, a few times. So I know. for those that are listening, I. I uh, I got a, a 1995 long wheelbase Range Rover Classic from Andy many years ago. And I, I did a bunch of work to it as one does with Range Rover
1: Classics. It's yeah, a continuous thing.
0: <laughs> and uh, I drove it back from his place in Houston, had a wonderful drive through Texas and everything coming back. And then I, I had the vehicle for Maybe three or four years, something like that, and uh, and then one day you said, "Hey Scott, what are you doing with that Range Rover? Class? <laughs> I want it back." <laughs> and then you you got the car back, and you did a full
1: oh, restoration God. on that. Painful, painful, painful. Yeah, I did a full floorboard replacement, rust mitigation, you name it, and the work that you did on it and the work that I did on it has positioned it really well to sell at auction (laughs) for for its future owner. Yeah. But all the work's been done. Someone's going to have a great, great, great vehicle.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you've got a a 70 series Land Cruiser that you keep available to you in Kenya. And you've also now owned a couple G wagons. Talk about what your experiences are with the G-Wagon versus the Land Cruiser. What's your, what do you see as being the strengths and weaknesses of each?
1: Ooh, that's a really good question. Well, first of all, one of them has this sense, this, this uh, pride of ownership that it just, uh, G-Wagons are so well built. When you close a door, it feels like perfect machinery yeah. being closed. Closing a bank vault. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's just amazing. It's amazing. Um, yeah. You don't get, Tons of articulation. You know, it's not the great rock crawler kind of a vehicle, but it's a great go anywhere kind of a vehicle. It's really well built. It's durable. It's not too big. It's pretty heavy though. Yeah. But it's not too big. Yeah. And um I just I like and appreciate how well built they are. Since 1979, yeah. until the latest version that came out, which I think is really unattractive. Um it, it didn't change. The outside body panels were the same. I I just think it's one of the most beautiful vehicles ever designed. Uh, With that being said, I think the the Range Rover classic was as well.
0: Yes, for sure. Yeah.
1: Um, But when it comes to the Toyota, the 70 series, unfortunately we don't have them here in the States. Um, They are just workhorses. They're affordable to maintain. They work really well. Um, There's a lack of passion with them. But you know that every time you turn that key, it's going to turn on and it's going to go.
0: And when you're in the middle of yeah the, the delta, surrounded by predators, <laughs> it's nice when that starter kicks off every time.
1: Yeah, it, I mean it, it's 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 a workhorse that is timeless, hmm. but at the same time, it it does lack that um, eagerness when you put the key in your hand and you're walking out to the car park to go drive your vehicle. I don't have that with a Toyota yeah. or a Lexus product. Sure. With a G-Wagon, you're just like, you're just ready to get in it. <laughs> and uh, like my last G-Wagon, which was a rust factory, <laughs> um, but it was my test. Do I want to buy another one? Do I want to try it out? And it's the only vehicle I've ever bought and sold for more money. Right, right. As as the price of new G wagons go up, it just brings the the floor of the used ones up.
0: They're a fairly good investment in general.
1: Yeah, it's become
0: part of pop culture now.
1: Unfortunately, yeah. But it's it's such a capable vehicle.
0: Yeah, they're really they're really are special for sure. And what's next for you? I mean, you're you're we're going to be hopefully coming out of this travel restriction, and countries are starting to open up. You just mentioned that Kenya was just opening up. What do you, where do you want to go next? What's your next big adventure for you?
1: Oh man, I don't really know, but I, I think Namibia is in yeah. my future. Another Namibia trip, um, a Northern Kenya trip, mm. up uh, way up to the border of Ethiopia. Like Lake Turkana area. Turkana. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah that, I want to make it up there. pretty wild up there. I enjoy it. Big time wild. I enjoy it. Big time wild. That's on my list. Um, Southern Angola is on my list. Yeah. Photographing some of the cultures there. And that but that's a long term. These are kind of long term things. Sure. And the next six to twelve months, it's uh returning back to safari planning. Um, maybe some more North American travel, you know, because that's sure. available to us right now. And um so I foresee some some um some backcountry travel, probably Utah, maybe parts of Nevada, Colorado again this this fall.
0: I'd love to see your big print. <laughs> <laughs> impressions of Southern Utah. That would be incredible.
1: You know, I mean, I've run so many photographic workshops in Utah and I love it there, but my best, most, uh, the, 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 the times that like, like that go deep into my heart are usually when I'm by myself mm. or with a friend and you see something and because no one's there with you, you appreciate it more. Yeah. All right. And, uh, so we'll see, we'll see where I'll go. But that's exciting though. Yeah. What what about you? I'm turning it around. You
0: know, (laughs) I mean, for me, it's, it's definitely getting back to Africa and I and do it on a motorcycle. So right now I'm clearing out the things in my life that I can to make it easier for me to travel and also work. So it's the next step will be deciding what motorcycle to buy and then getting it ready to, to cross Africa. So that's going to be, Hopefully, I'll have that done uh, by the time all this stuff lifts. There's no reason not to take advantage of this downtime to prep a motorcycle to ship. But do you want to do one long trip or do you want to do it in segments? It'll need to be in segments. I find that about six weeks at a time works really well for me where I can still stay engaged in the business and support my staff as necessary and support the business as necessary and then, so I'll I'll probably travel travel for about six weeks, and then come back for a couple months, and then go and travel for another six weeks. So I think it would be three six week segments across Africa.
1: Yeah, uh, that sounds like
0: a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I, I've I've uh, I've been wanting to do it for years, and I've been putting it off, and I don't even know why. I, there's no no reason that comes to mind other than I think I've also enjoyed. Doing some different things for a little while, but but now I'm really excited about getting back on a motorcycle and and heading out into the to the big unknown. Do you so. want this to be a solo trip though? It, if it needs to be, it will be. There's a couple a couple friends that I've invited to come along, and they've all expressed interest. And I, I think the best way for me to position it with them is this is when I'm leaving. I would love for you to come. I'm leaving on this date. If you can be there, that's great. That way they don't feel any obligation to go they can choose at, even at the last minute even the the motorcycle could be on in the airport in johannesburg and they decide not to go i just don't want to put anybody under that pressure because africa is it's a big endeavor it's also there's a lot of risk involved there's a lot of constantly shifting political dynamics and even environmental dynamics than the continent so these are open invitations to a couple of folks and hopefully they come. And if not, it's also totally okay. I'll just do it on my own.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's some places that I think that mode of travel might be more challenging than others. Yeah. You know, for given times of the year, like a rainy time that for a country that has a lot of mud. Yeah. It could be a little uncomfortable.
0: It'll be really difficult <laughs> on a bike and it does need to be timed around that. Yeah. Um, the motorcycles, especially the bigger bikes. When it gets, you get into that real thick clay mud, uh, very, very difficult to ride a big bike in those conditions. I experienced some of that in the equatorial regions of uh, South America. But every time that I travel on a motorcycle by myself, it is very transformative. I don't typically travel alone. So when I do, um, you spend a lot of time thinking about life. And I think that that's really, that's really positive. I'm so, laughing
1: because so many books have been written by people yeah. that, that have ridden solo on a motorcycle.
0: I think it's really healthy to do that. I don't think it's healthy to do it all the time. I think at least for myself, I I enjoy experiencing the world and adventure with others, but I also have found that any anytime that I've traveled alone, especially for long stretches of time, like riding back from, Lima, Peru, all the way back to Colombia by myself, I I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about how I wanted my life to be. So I think that those solo times are also really transformative. That quiet time in a helmet, just thinking about life is good.
1: Well, if you want someone in, with four wheels, let me know.
0: <laughs> well, we, there's no reason we shouldn't connect along the way. That would, that would make, that would certainly make a lot of sense. That would be awesome. Well, Andy, Thank you so much for your time today. I, I, I really appreciate all of your insights. I've enjoyed our friendship through the years. How do people find out more about you? What's your website? What's your Instagram? How do yeah. people follow you?
1: I'm pretty easy to find. Just my name, Andy, A-N-D-Y-B-I-G-G-S, Biggs, andybiggs.com. And I've got an Instagram account. Uh, it's Andy Biggs safaris with underscores in between each word. Andy underscore Biggs underscore safaris.
0: Yeah. Get on there and check out his images. They're absolutely stunning. And if you're thinking about making a trip to Africa, sounds like Andy would be a good one to reach out to at least get some advice from. And thank you as always for listening. And we will talk to you all next time.